When I first sat down with James Altucher, I wasn't really sure what direction this conversation would go, and it went a lot of directions. The guy is absolutely brilliant. And whether we were talking about building online games or the need for continuing education, cryptocurrency, the president, or any number of other topics, it seemed like we just went down one rabbit hole after another. So get ready to settle in. This is going to be probing, thoughtful, and insightful as we get into the mind of a best-selling author, an entrepreneur, a venture capitalist, a podcaster, and a really great thinker, Mr. James Altucher. Buckle up. Please keep clear of the doors. You are delaying the departure of this train. I have two guests for you. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, the first one is a New York City lottery ticket. Oh, thank you. I mean, this could be the big one. I'll hold on to it so I can I can daydream all day. Well, it, if you ever lose it all again, this is this could be the new beginning. It could be, yeah. yeah. And then, oh, uh, I'm going to lose it all again. That's a guarantee. Here's the... Uh, Bad I can't podcast. imagine that on your head, though. I mean, with your hair. I, I don't... Oh, wow. There we go. That actually works. That actually, that actually works well. Bad Crypto Podcast. It's true. Representing. Uh, the the geeks really did inherit the earth, didn't they? They did, yeah. What? <laughs> when did you know, the... when I was a kid, I never considered myself a geek or a nerd. But now, but because these things have become a little bit more positive in our culture now, people have embraced those words. But they were not really like friendly words when, when we were younger. I don't know how old you are. Yeah, but... I'm 55. We're close to the same age. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, You're 52. 52. Okay. Yeah. So when I was in high school, uh, freshman year, I took CS 101 and they had COBOL punch cards. Oh yeah. Okay. And then they were gone. The next year they brought the Apple IIe yeah. in. Yeah. So what was your first computer? Uh, an Apple II plus. And, and were you a, were you a coder? You are, you were like an engineer, right? Yeah. Yeah. But not until, not till later. And I, I switched, I, my first program to computer the summer before my junior year of college. And then I switched majors halfway through my junior year and, and finished out with a CS major. Then I went to grad school in CS. And, and got and a I job was, doing. Hmm? And you got a job working as a programmer. Yeah, yeah. I was a programmer. I started a company, two software companies, three software companies. So depending on how you define software. Was it natural? I mean, for me, I loved using computers. I had a TRS-80. And, but my coding was like line 10, it was basic line 10, print hello, line 20, go to 10. And that was, you know, about it. Yeah. That's good. No, it wasn't. It was, I realized, you know, I you love these gotten things. You could have more. I mean, if you, if you wanted to probably. To, I don't know that I have the machine brain. I have the, the entrepreneurial marketer's brain. Yeah, that could be. I wonder if they're, if they're, if they're connected. Cause there's both involve some kind of spatial relationships, right? Like if you mm-hmm. do, um, if you use these words in a marketing campaign or an ad, you'll get this response. If you use these words in a marketing campaign or ad, you'll get this response. If you get the bigger response, double down here. It's a very logical way, if then way of thinking. Do you see that in your mind's eye as a coder? Do you is there you do you envision this whole chart of yes. of if thens? Yeah, because what happens is I don't know how it is now, but now they have very different kind of programming environments that keep track of everything for you and help you debug. Uh, you know, back then in the, in the olden days, let's say 
20 to 35 years ago, uh, you had to kind of keep track of every, if you were at like a 2000 line or a 10,000 line piece of code, you kind of had to keep track of everything in your head. And if there was a bug, you kind of had to know which parts of the code affected which other parts. So you were encouraged to document very thoroughly. So it was easy to track. I was horrible at documenting. I wrote really messy code, but I was very fast because that was my skill set was basically to keep track of all of it in my head and debug very quickly. But ultimately it's, it's a young man doing it. Programming that way is a young man's game. And by the time I was 30, it was very, it, it was it was too tiring for me. It's kind of like I the old school architect, my father, who's 84 and still with us, always used drawing boards, never learned CAD. But it's that type of shift, isn't it? It's like going from this manual uh, drawing with your hand in T-squares to clicking. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like that. Uh, so even when I've programmed, let's say in the past 20 years, I've tried to use as kind of uh, close to the machine environment as I can, because I can't actually handle the the easy ways where you drag code around and it clicks into place and keeps track of all your potential bugs. Like I, I, I just have to do it the, the old fashioned way, but it's very tiring that way because you, the brain sort of, the, as you get older, the brain sort of loses kind of its um, direct tactical, you know, I don't know what you call it. Arsenal We're losing brain cells as we speak, yeah. right? I can't even find but, the words. But you do get you do get kind of more intuition and wisdom. Mm -hmm. You know, you hopefully. also hopefully you also cement some bad mistakes, but you kind of learn you have enough experiences, hopefully that you learn through some bad mistakes and, and bad habits. But in terms of like direct tactical things like programming or let's say a game like chess, you better you better set yourself up to to rely on intuition and not uh you know not brute force brain power you know there is this thing about getting older right and and you there was an article i saw this morning and i won't tell you who wrote it it was on business did, did i write it because i could have forgotten no. that's the problem <laughs> no. with getting you, older you did not write it but i had to make a post and a comment about it on facebook the title of the article was if your friends don't talk about money you need new friends huh that's interesting. Uh, just just based on the title alone, what do you what do you think of that? Well, I don't know what the audience is of that article, but I know for me and all of my friends, all we've ever talked about is is money. <laughs> now, it's not the only thing, but we've oh, money has always been uh, on the table for discussion if we ever get together. So, how much each person is worth? Is it enough? How how do you make more? What do you think of this idea? Like this is always brewing somewhere in the conversation. Not not all not in a boring way. Not in like oh I need to buy a yacht so I gotta like make this money. Not like that. More like you know, is it is this enough uh, to to survive and feed your family? You know, if if bad things happened, uh, what do you think of this idea? Do you think this will make money? Is this a better idea than this idea? Will this take too much time, too much money, and and so on. And, and again, it's not the main topic of conversation, but money becomes uh, an ancillary product of creativity uh, in some cases for me and many of my friends. Like if, you know, creativity and finding kind of 
meaning in whatever you're doing is always the most important thing. And the ancillary effect of doing it well, whatever it is you're doing, is that it should be able to pay for itself ultimately and you should be able to make some money. So we're doing a podcast and podcasts is, I, I, I spend a lot of time each week doing a podcast and doing writing. On the surface, none of these things make money or should make money. Um, but if you do it well enough, then over time you figure out how to monetize and then you figure out one way to monetize two ways, five ways, 10 ways. And suddenly you start monetizing all of these ways. And then one, podcasting might feed into the writing, might feed into other creative activities. And you have kind of a little mini business going along with whatever other businesses you have. But that's not why you start podcasting. Right? I mean, some no, people no, treat you it never, as a business. You can't, you won't be a good podcaster if you start for the money. I didn't make any money at all on my podcast. Well, I monetize my podcast, but I have a, a team of people helping me. So I have yet to really make a dime on my podcast. And writing, you don't really write a book to make money from the book. You make money. You, 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 first off, you should write. It took me 11 years of writing almost every single day before I made a single dime from it. And so it definitely shouldn't be the reason why you write is to make money. And then ultimately, even if you write a book that does well, you're going to make more money from, again, the side effects of writing, not the book itself. Very rarely will or will people make money just from their books. Right. So you might make money, if you write a great book, you might make money from speaking gigs, or let's say it's a work of fiction, you might option it for other things or, or sell it into other markets. Uh, you know, there's, there's lots of ways to make money from, from writing, but writing a book or writing articles is probably the worst way to make money from writing. <laughs> I tend to concur, and you've written more books than me. I'm up to 15, but you've got like 15. 20? That's a lot. I have 22. 22. So yeah. your wiki needs to be updated. Yeah. Um, well, you know what? Every I hope maybe you can help me update it because every time I change or anytime anybody changes anything in my Wikipedia page, I don't make any changes on my Wikipedia page, but I know anytime anyone makes any change, there's some somebody who's um who who basically just reverses it the wiki nazis basically yeah. is what they are i mean i can't even mention my podcast right so so i have 540 episodes i've been doing this podcast for almost seven years and you know it's almost 100 million downloads at this point i've had all sorts of people it's been ranked you know number one in itunes on a couple of different occasions and yet and it's been mentioned in a bunch of and yet it cannot be mentioned in Wikipedia. Someone always puts it up and someone marketing. always takes it down. Right. That's that's they don't they think the moment that you're talking about yourself, even on your own page with your own accomplishments, that it is somehow self-promotional. Well, I'm not I don't even put it there. Somebody else will put it and then tell me later or I'll see in the history. Someone put it and some unknown person and then some unknown person immediately, like within seconds, took it down. Like, how do they even know? I guess they get notified. They, they get they, notified. Yeah. yeah. So there's also, there was a New York times article about me that was taken down. I, I have no idea why. Uh, it's a whole bunch of things that were taken. That's down. unusual. See, because usually what they're looking for is the sourcing right. and you've got New York times. There's, there's it, legit sources for, for all of these things. And yet they, and yet I don't know what the deal is. I, I've called people and nobody can figure it out. Like the person who is editing it is, you know, has some influence. Somebody has a vendetta. Yeah. An altitude vendetta. Yeah. Well, I can either confirm. Well, many or... people have vendettas through, through no fault of my own, I, I think. You're a nice guy. I think You're I am harmless. too. I think I am too. But for some reason, um, uh, people either hate me or or like like me. You know, if I get a lot of comments like, 
boy, I wish I could like that guy, but he annoys me so much. And I'm like, what did I do to be annoying? I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be controversial or annoying. And I don't think I'm that controversial. I don't think you're controversial at all. I think, I mean, yeah. everybody has opinions. Yeah, you have opinions. So what? I, think, I don't know. I, I really have no idea. Well, I like you. Uh, thank you for, so much, Sean. Thank you for reaching out and asking to do this podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, and I can neither confirm nor deny for the record that I might be able to help with that Wikipedia page. Yeah, don't don't confirm I or deny. confirm nor deny. I don't, I don't need to know. Can't make any. It's on a need-to-know basis. Promises <laughs> about that. Wait, we actually, when uh, Travis Wright and I interviewed you for the Bad Crypto Podcast, you told me that uh, I played a role very early on in your gaming experience uh do you remember what it was i i don't i don't uh remember I jog the memory yeah you know yeah, now, I'm over, now that we're games. over 50 like i can't remember anything yahoo yahoo games uh because you played uh incessantly on yes. chess and checkers and yeah well, uh, that was i invented that oh that's right i'm so, the one who sold that's incredible to yahoo you know i am extremely jealous because back in 19 92 pre-web i was thinking you know it'd be great to make a collection of game servers for every game and kind of combine them into one mega area it was, this was pre-web so it wasn't like a website so 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 for instance you know the internet chess club icc yeah, sure so it was competitor eventually with the chess part of yahoo games right and there was also igc which was the go uh there was a go server there was a backgammon server uh, i forgot what the name of that one was uh, so there was all these independent servers for games and I worked on, I helped develop the internet chess server and the Go code and even the backhand code, I think was related to part of the code that I created for the chess server. And I was just playing chess on the chess server here. I remember thinking in 1992, this is a disaster because there's no reason for this to ever go away. <laughs> like, the in, unless you thought the internet was going to disappear or somehow get regulated against games, which was clearly not going to happen. I was playing, I was addicted back in 1992. I was playing online chess up to 16, 17, 18 hours a day. Holy cow. I On would, your way to be a grandmaster. Uh, or a way to just be a degenerate. And because uh, <laughs> I would just play like one minute chess where each side gets one minute and then you run out of time and whoever loses out of time. You either, either lose or you get checkmated, and that's how you lose. You either run out of time or you get checkmated. And so I'd play all day and night and just wouldn't go home and would lock my office door. So if my boss was banging on the door, I wouldn't answer. And I was just like addicted to this. And I was I and I had helped create it. And I was thinking to myself, this really sucks because 30 years from now, and here it is, I was thinking this, 30 years from now, this is still going to exist. And how am I going to deal? Am I gonna, am I 30 years from now, am I gonna be playing 18 hours a day? I don't think I can handle this. And I was correct that it would still be around because that was obvious. And I probably don't play 18 hours a day. It's probably down to one to two hours a day, but I still play every single day. But Yahoo Games, I never played on the chess part, but I played on Checkers, Bridge, uh, Scrabble, hearts uh othello uh i think those were the games i played on yahoo games so did you play as the which avatar did you use uh Do i don't know i had a whole i'm looking bunch. up to see if i can find the one that'll jog your memory here and maybe Google images i think sometimes i had altature that was my name or so look at the look at the little faces the avatar guys so there's the one 
with the red red cap glasses goatee that was me and the blue cap with the blonde hair avatar that was the coder aaron see this could have just as easily been you that i partnered with because i'm not the coder but my webmaster knew that I was into games and he found he he found this little thing off in the neck, you know, somewhere in the little creek on the Internet that this UCSD uh, guy was coding called Springerspan.com. And he had a couple of his friends beta testing it. So my webmaster says, hey, go check out what this guy's doing. And I go to him and my entrepreneurial brain kicks in. So I write the guy, I say, this is great. I've got a website. I've got traffic. You've got games. Let's partner up. We'll rename it, please. What was, your, what was your website that had traffic? A worldvillage.com. So it was kind of like a, a social network type uh, of thing? Uh, actually, we did have a, an IRC room, uh-huh. you know, for way back then for our village chat, but it was a virtual village. So, but it was really for parents um, that wanted software reviews from a parental perspective and articles about the internet from that perspective, okay. but also some games. So you had, you had traffic. He had all the game software, but didn't have, he, for whatever reason, it wasn't, he wasn't the most popular game. Like if people wanted to play hearts on the internet, where would they go? Yeah, there wasn't. And he didn't really, you know, he wasn't, it was just an experiment for him. He had a couple friends. So I approached him. I said, Hey, let's partner up. And we called it classicgames.com, and we rolled the thing out and I went knocking. I, I think at our concurrent uh, player level, we had about 600 people at one time, which for 1997 was pretty bad. 1997. I wish... I wish the coder was here because I'll tell you why I could, um, there was lots of options when we were making this game server, the chess one in 1992. And I'm just curious which decisions he made as opposed to the decisions I made in terms of what he coded it in. Or well, in terms no, of no. In terms of how you, do you just iterate through all the users who are online to see what, if they had typed a command and then you just keep doing that over and over again. And then you, if someone had typed a command, you, you execute the command, then you go on to the next person or do you do things somewhat in parallel or, you know, do, 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 there's a lot, there were a lot of decisions. Logic yeah. Yeah. Cause there's a lot of decisions in terms of like, you know, if you had tens of thousands of people, for instance, depending on what choices you made in the beginning, it could become too slow and then it's not good mm-hmm. if there's a clock. Well, that would be so he had to scale it because Yahoo came knocking on our door in 97 and 98. We sold it to them and he went with them and became their chief game Yahoo. So he was tasked with that scaling. Yeah, well, with Yahoo's resources, there's lots of things you can do for making it parallel and to create multiple servers and and to spin uh, individual instances of a game onto another server. Uh, so so with with infinite resources, you, you, there's a lot more, more choices you have. Uh, but the reason I said I was jealous is because at one point I took a, I made a change in path, which is I went from being kind of more creative oriented with a little bit of software. You know, so during this time I was computer software guy, but I also worked at HBO. I was also trying to write fiction and nonfiction. And, and then I viewed the web as a creative medium, not as an entrepreneurial medium. So this is like in 1994, not, not that many people knew how to make a website. And I kind of got drawn into helping people make websites, which is another story. But then I kind of switched from this more creative activity to just for this 12 year period being obsessed with making money. So I, I did a complete switch. I, I went into the investment management business. I started a hedge fund. I started writing about finance. I was writing for the journal, for the Financial Times. I wrote a bunch of finance books. I grew, I grew up 
pretty big hedge fund and then a fund of hedge funds. But I wish I had just stuck with my initial interests, which would have been software plus games. I mean, I had already made a game server and you guys did a great job, I thought, on Yahoo Games or, you know, whatever the, I didn't know the predecessor of it, but uh, it was very clean. I was always impressed with how clean Yahoo Games was, how easy it was to to play and, and how it seems like you set it up so it was easy to set up new games. And I thought that would have been a real natural outlet for me as opposed to getting obsessed with investing and and just diving deep into that for, you know, now still 20 years later. Well, two things about that. One, you know, Yahoo, like everything they touched, killed it. I know. Right. Yahoo Games not exist now? Yahoo killed. So here's what they did. Mm-hmm. They began licensing Flash games. Mm-hmm. So its roots were these board and table games with multiplayer and built a huge community. I remember going on and sometimes seeing 150,000 or so people, you know, playing at one time, which back then that was that was quite a few. I mean, it's not like Fortnite now, but had a hugely loyal following. But Yahoo, you know, they killed everything. And they actually spiked it a few years ago. They just totally removed it. And the community was like, what? Why? We love this. I I was on there every day. I remember you even had Chinese checkers. I was playing Chinese checkers on there. Uh, Every every card game uh, that you had on there I was playing. You know, it could be. So this actually could lead to another interesting discussion. What if your dream was to circle back around and we actually revived a multiplayer game site? Well, but the thing is, I think a lot of games have really been, the game servers are great. So like chess.com for chess plus ICC, the one I helped start, those are great now. Those are, I I mean, the best players in the world play there. It's very sophisticated. Uh, the, the Go servers that are out there are play the best players in the world play on there. Backgammon, and the best players in the world play on there. They're all separate though, right? They're all separate, yeah. So you could do a roll up of potentially buying each one of them, but they're, but a lot of these game servers now are very profitable, so it'd be more expensive than in 1992 where it would have cost nothing, and uh, or even 1997 it probably would have cost nothing, like probably cost you nothing to get all that guy's game software merged with the, your site. <laughs> I'm sure you put it together a good deal a with a, a yeah. coder. Uh, and you know, I don't, I don't know of any site though with the card games. I mean, Facebook has got some, some stuff, uh, built in, you know, and there's like words with friends and things like that. And then now there's a lot of apps. So you could do, you can do online gaming with a lot of apps. It would need to be mobile for sure. Yeah. Uh, You know, a community of, of players, but I can't believe Yahoo killed it still to this day. It boggles my mind. Yeah. Cause stuff like that is obviously it's very sticky because you're not going to the site and leaving and People are going to return every day because that's where your friends are. I made friends on these things. And then cut off from it. And that kind of just goes to show how these centralized services, right? It's one thing to be in a community and oh, you're, fr- you're disconnected from your friends. It's another to build a business on it and get deplatformed. Yeah. Right? And that's happening. Have you ever had an account closed or suspended on any of the social platforms? Uh, no. But you know people who have. Yes, every day. Yeah. And so um, does that. Well, there's a big finance site or news site, Zero Hedge, that just got Zero either Hedge. banned or shadow banned. Uh, Ep- Epic Times, I think, was another one. Oh, I don't know. Um, they, uh, have you noticed uh, in terms of political leanings? Yeah, yeah. I've seen some Facebook groups that are like shadow banned where they exist, but they won't show up on the 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 feed unless you look for it. I think I'm shadow banned on Twitter because I have 800,000 followers on Twitter. Yeah. I don't think you're shadow banned. No, no. I, I get like, if you look at the engagement 
with my tweets and the insights of how many people see them. It's the numbers are not what they used to be. Well, was it a spike down or a gradual drift? Because I think in general, the algorithms are not, are favoring newer users and our users who, you know, the, the algorithms change all the time, right? So, you, you know, you look like an, at a platform like TikTok, I think their algorithm is very sophisticated where they give this huge dopamine rush to new users. Like they'll throw your videos out front if you're brand new to the platform so that you might have 10 followers, but get 200,000 views on a video. And that gets you get, that gets all the new users excited. But the longer you're on it, your relationship with the algorithm changes. And maybe that's happening I'm old on Twitter. Gray. They, they don't care. You know, I wrote the book on Twitter, literally Twitter power, Twitter power 2.0 and Twitter power 3.0 among the top selling books on using Twitter for business. And was that, um, was that uh, soft porn fiction? <laughs> it was not. So it was a predecessor to 50 shades of Twitter. <laughs> and I couldn't even get anybody there to talk to me. I mean, Jack never wanted to have a conversation. And they're like, we got this. When did you write them? Uh, it was 2009, 2010, 2014. Well, you should have called me. Dick Costello wrote the forward to my book, choose yourself. <sighs> So close. Who did I have write the forward for the first one? Uh, Tony Robbins wrote the forward for the first one. Uh, so you kind of failed. I went with the marketing approach. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I did. That, no, that's a huge get for a forward. That's a better, that, that's a bigger get than I got for my, for Choose Yourself. Well, it would have been if his team would have announced it at all, but they no, didn't. just the name it provides a good credibility to what you're saying. It didn't hurt. We, we sold books, but... Um, you know, just like Google when I wrote the AdSense code. And we hit New York Times with that one. It's the only time I've ever hit the New York yeah. Times. In fact, my my publisher who did that likes to introduce me at conferences. He goes, and there's my friend Joel Kahn, who hasn't had a New York Times bestseller since 2006. <laughs> no, he's not supposed to say that. He's supposed to say New York Times bestselling author. Once you're a New York Times bestselling uh, author, you're always a New York Times uh, bestselling he author. He likes to rib me because it hasn't happened again. I would say books like AdSense, the AdSense code will, will not ever make it onto the New York Times bestseller list ever again. I mean, there's a little curation that happens. Mm -hmm. And I think all of that stuff now is kind of in, I don't want to call it the, the trash heap, but just sort of the pile of constant books that are being produced now about, you know, every change in SEO and social media and so on like well, kind the of the title has to have an f word in it if, yeah you know. right there is a lot of there is a lot of that now there other than mark manson's book there's that other one um victor something anyway victor f yourself yeah something like that <laughs> and then we we just had breakfast with my one of my favorite f authors uh maddox he wrote uh f wales mm. and uh it was, it was a hilarious book um, but anyway, the pendulum's got to swing back at some point, right? It already has, I think. I mean, it's enough with it already. Yeah, I, I was actually somebody linked to one of Mark Manson's articles, and I went to his website, and it it says author, speaker, entrepreneur. I'm like, it should just say effer on there too, because <laughs> well, that was his big his most famous article was the article that the book is based on, and it was it, it was a really great article. The book's a, I mean, that's the, I mean, that book has sold over eight million copies, and it, on Amazon right now, it is the most uh the most read, the most pages read book on Amazon. So Amazon could tell on the Kindle how many pages you've read. More pages have been read of that book than any other Kindle book. Brilliant marketing. I mean, yeah. that title, that was it. The title did. It's like the four-hour work week. Yeah. Everybody wants that. And everybody wants to, to learn the art of not caring and, and being able to live their lives. It's, it goes to show you, though, how important title is because Tim Ferriss had a completely different idea for a title it was sort of like um, 
the drug dealer's handbook for selling blah blah blah. Because he was selling like these neurotropic uh -huh. sort of nutraceuticals and stuff. And uh so he had this really like elaborate title, and somehow or other his publisher said, nah, we're gonna go with the four hour work week. And then what a coup. For for choose yourself, uh I was debating between four different titles. My favorite was Choose Yourself, and then I had some friends propose. I had three other friends propose three other titles. Uh, and I put up Facebook ads for each title and, and you're able, to, I just put a $20 budget behind each Facebook ad and we're able to see, and it had, it clicked to nothing. If you clicked on it, you would just get nothing, but you can see how many people clicked on it. Mm -hmm. So I picked the title that the most people clicked on and it was by far choose yourself. You just basically crowdsource yeah. the title. Out yeah. Because that works. Focus grouping in, in a mass, uh, media you know, I knew that was my audience, kind of the social media audience who were people who were already following me. And so uh, I figured that would be the best group to to quote unquote ask. I didn't ask them directly because you don't really want people's opinions, but you do want people's clicks in, in those types of tests. Doubly smart, right? Because if I'm going to crowdsource, I'll go to my friends and I'll ask them. But you're right. There's that inherent bias that's built in there. People vote right with with their with their choices yeah and uh uh you know and my friends were very the people i asked were extremely smart they were they were extremely like great writers and authors and and title pickers uh but you know everybody has their kind of you know good and bad ideas and so the 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 titles they picked just didn't simply didn't work for for this and choose yourself turned out to be by far the best title and then the two of the people I asked were Tucker Max, who you probably know, and, and Ryan Holiday, who are, you know, great, great writers and also great title pickers. They just didn't, you know, maybe because they didn't have the same feel for, for the book that I did, but they were, they were both giving me a lot of advice. And, you know, we decided to do this experiment. That's actually a, a for somebody's bio for like Ryan Holiday, you should put title picker as his. You know, his bio line. Yeah, that'd be, he, he's got a lot of impressive things in his in his bio, so he, that's the last thing he needs. <laughs> his title. Actually, I've I've changed mine because, you know, when you do a lot of different things over the years, people don't know who you are anymore, right? Yeah. I, I've kind of failed myself. Yeah, who myself. are you anyway? Yeah. You I, did Yahoo Games. Now I'm really myself. impressed. Internet entrepreneur, so I built a site in 95. I did Yahoo Games. I had one of the first deal sites on the web in 1999 dealofday.com with you know making a lot from affiliate marketing um, uh, did, did someone did like my points or somebody buy that no or? they didn't i did sell it to an individual um buyer in in 2012 um after making a lot off of it and they killed it which really makes me sad so many times people buy sites they get these you know big eyes and then they don't know what they're doing with it i think most people shouldn't acquire sites because right, it, it came <laughs> from my uh, passion most people shouldn't acquire businesses because like most businesses most business acquisitions kind of fail mm -hmm. it requires that that initial passion and you know it's your baby yeah who's going to take care of your baby yeah like, like you did like you're willing to work 23 out of 24 hours a day on it no one else is going to do that well you know if you're impressed by yahoo i mean you know what app i made right no oh, i made the iphone app uh i don't even think i know that it, app. it went to number one in uh really? in 2008 and still gets downloads today we we uh we basically set the trend for stupid novelty apps on the iphone i like that and um it was explosive <laughs> made a bit of a stink funny yeah. yes you know, <laughs> this, this is part of my stand-up yeah. routine right here although i'm, I'm a better sit-down comic <laughs> than i am a 
stand-up comic. City Sometimes I'm okay. a sit-down-and-shut-up comic. City Dad's okay. That's good. Well, went to number one, so it was good enough. Went to number one. Still gets talked about today. Uh, uh, George Clooney, in the Rolling Stone uh, cover interview they did with him, said that it's his favorite app. He has it on his phone. So every time somebody in the media mentions it, it blows up again. And there's another not-so-subtle pun for you. <laughs> I, only, I only have rarely... I, oh, sorry. I've only recently started really using apps like going in the app store and mm. saying what app should i buy like when i get a new phone i get google chrome app and i get backgammon and my own my the particular backgammon app that i like and that's that's it those well, are my clearly apps you need to get ifart i mean you're like i know i know i i, I feel like less worthy now so why chrome when there's brave uh so brave to I, a Chrome is just, I've always kind of trusted Google products, whether I should or not. And I like how everything. Spoiler alert, you should not. I believe that. But I like, you know, so I have, I like just having kind of connected up all my different Google apps. It feels like one ecosystem that I can make use of. And uh, I feel like there's more apps or more functionality when they're all kind of working together and you have it, all. It's them. hard to get off of it. Uh, and this, I, I intend to de Googleify. Um, I started by switching from using Google to DuckDuckGo. Yeah. Uh, DuckDuckGo is a privacy browser. So our, our son uses only DuckDuckGo, which, by the way, they got DuckDuckCom now. So And Gabriel Weinberg's been on my podcast a bunch of times. They got what? DuckDuckDuckCom? They got Duck.com. Oh, that's great. Good I think they Google gave it to them. <laughs> well, that was nice of Sergey and yeah. Larry. Here's a little something. Even though we own the world, here we'll throw you a, yeah. a duck bone. And, th and they're a good solid, like, I think, 1% of search traffic, which is not yeah. insignificant. It's not. And so, uh, and, and it's very rare that I don't find what I'm looking for and have to go to Google. And then I removed Chrome from my, my laptop, my desktop, and my phone. And now I use Brave. And it's very, very rare that I come across something that doesn't work as it's intended to so i've got this privacy browser which by the way they announced yesterday 12 million users now and and i get paid in basic attention token if i look at ads which is their cryptocurrency yeah. bat token so, robin does john use brave the browser you should text him yeah so the it, but the tricky part is the suite of products right because you've got gmail you've got your google drive uh you've got your google calendar and I'm actually looking at alternatives now. There's one I ran across called Colab, K-O-L-A-B, collabnow.com. They'll love that free shout out, even though I'm not a customer yet. And allegedly, it's supposed to integrate those three and they could pour it over your entire Google account. Well, that was another thing that some entrepreneur did that was just so easy in retrospect and but somebody did it and sold it to google which is to basically make microsoft word on the web and then obviously that's going to be useful and people will use it and 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 you know make excel on the web and so on and google just bought all of those little companies they're they're whoever again like i i, I was programming i was doing internet programming back in like 1988 programming on the web you know as soon as tim berners lee whatever it was, 1991 or 1992, released the first web server. And all of these things are not rocket science. There's no real rocket science on the web, which is part of the beauty of the web, at least in the beginning. And I wish I had just, that's, that's one of my bigger regrets. I wish I had just stuck with that because I had the passion, I had the interest, I had the skill, and I had the ideas even, 
But I was like, no, no, a, a more direct. I, I was more, I got out of balance where you, when you start focusing on money too much, as, where money is the goal and money should never be the goal because then you'll just lose your creativity. You won't have the right kind of energy for it. You'll get disappointed over the wrong things to be disappointed in. And you, you, there's no real pleasure in doing things for the money because you can also lose money and then it's very painful. Whereas if you're making like a game server or iFart, it's just fun. And then, and then some things work, some things don't. Some things make it to number one in the iTunes store. I'm sure you did some things that were fun that didn't make it to number one, but you, you, you keep all, trying. All the rest of them. Yeah. Right. But you're, you never know what's going to hit. Right. You never know. That's a, my, my last book was called the fun formula. And that's the whole notion behind it is that you just got to do things that you're passionate about, that you're engaged in and something is going to hit. Well, and the key word there is do so many people. I, I'm sure you get these emails as well. I get emails all the time, almost every day. Um, 24 years old and I haven't yet found my passion in life. Like what should I do? Or, or I'm, 55 years old and I'm going through a life to change right now. We lost my job. My spouse left me. I don't know what I'm passionate about. What should I do? Same question. But, uh, the, the key is you have to do lots of things. You don't, you can't think your way to a passion. It's, it's never worked for me that way. It's never worked for anyone. I know that way you, you have to like do things. And like, I bet you the first time you clicked around on Twitter and saw your friends there and you were communicating with people you probably got excited, you know, excited to the point where you became an expert and then wrote three books about it. So I'm sure you didn't do that. Oh, I'm going to, this thing's big. It's going to make a lot of money. I'm going to write the Twitter code or whatever. Never, never intended to. Right. It's always you. I like to play with the toys as do you. I kind of see the world as this big sand, you know, sandboxes everywhere. And we were kids with pail and shovel. Yeah. And we go and we like build stuff. And sometimes, oh, that sand's not wet enough. Nothing's going to happen there. And then sometimes we build a little something. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Mm, the, the waves come wash it away. Somebody else created something. Like, I don't do that. But then every now and then you build something. It's like, wow, look what we built here. And what happens? People invariably come to you and say, how did you do that? And that's when you write the book. Yeah. Yeah. And the kid analogy is good because look, that's why kids get broken bones all the time. They're, oh, there's a tree. I'm going to climb up it and see what it feels like. Or there's, uh, I, I want to go on the roof or I want to go wading into the ocean a little bit too far and see what happens. So uh, uh, kids try things and do things and that's how they figure out what they what they like doing. Oh, I like bicycle riding, uh, playing basketball, you know, whatever it is. What did you do when you were little? Now, you know, before teenager, before the hormones kicked in, what was your jam? Uh, I... I don't know. I rode my bicycle a lot. I lived in a suburb, so it was great to just, there were no cars. All my friends lived in, you know, in a few block radius and, you know, we'd just ride our bicycles around. Did you around. create something? Was it, you know, when you were in your room or in the basement or whatever, did you make things? Yes. So every year I was always passionate or like literally obsessed with something. And it, that obsession would last for one or two years and they would be really sometimes really obscure sometimes a little bit more mainstream but i would get incredibly obsessed to the point of anno annoying my parents or costing my parents a lot of money one like or the, one what? or the other name a year pick a grade uh fifth grade fifth grade that was actually a pretty safe year i actually got really obsessed with writing in fifth grade mm. and so i was just reading constantly and i was writing stories but i was writing stories about all my friends 
and I was trying to like I was trying to to basically write stories of them, you know. Basically, I was picking every boy and girl in my classrooms and figuring out who was going to end up dating or marrying who. And I would just write constantly in this big notebook about it. And everybody was always trying to get into my notebook to see who I was fixing up with who. And so I would carry it with me everywhere and like to the bathroom and everything. And then the one time there was just a big fight, like 10 kids were trying to grab the notebook out of my hand and the teacher banned it for, from the school for, for life. But uh, you were a banned book. Yeah, it was a, it was a banned book. I was sent. <laughs> I was censored by my own fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Hilgey, who recently died. Rest in peace. And uh, uh, and I so consequently, as a result of that, though, I was constantly reading like every Judy Bloom book and tons of Are fiction. You there, and God? it's me, Margaret. And I have since then had Judy Bloom in my podcast, which was a oh, a isn't great that fun? Pleasure. Yeah, full circle. Yeah, I, I've got I've got one full circle that I really love. Zig Ziglar was my oh yeah mentor, and I remember going. He to was his, on your podcast. No, um, is he dead? His, his son has been. Yeah, Zig okay. is gone now, but um, it was back in two thousand. Well, I don't remember the year. I was twenty three years old, and I went to a Born to Win conference. It was the only motivational, inspirational event that I'd ever paid for five hundred bucks. You know, back in nineteen eighty nine. Or a young, you know, DJ, because that's what I was doing. It was a lot of money. And Zig is the one that when I became a salesman, I bought all the tapes and drove in my truck and just would listen to Secrets of Closing the Sale and, and see you at the top again and again and again. And it was in 2010, I, I spoke at Kerry Wilkerson's boss event in uh, Dallas, and I got to share the stage with zig and tell oh, him fun. what he had meant to me and and uh he signed my little ka-ching button what's the oh. main secret they're closing the sale that you got out of that book if you were uh, to say one thing yeah uh people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care all right people don't care how much that sounds like a steve cohen quote yeah people don't care how much you know until you know how until, much until, until they, they know, know how, how much, much you, you care. care that one and you get what you want in life when you help enough other people get what they want Say that one again. You get what you want in life when you help enough other people get what they want. Uh, okay. Uh, Very servant-based attitude all the way across. I like that style of quote. You know, it's, it's, uh, do you know what that's called? I think it's called. It's flipping the script, right? I think it's called anaphora. Anaphora. I don't Who's know how to say it. What's it? What's she for? I don't know. <laughs> it's, a, it's like, uh, it's like the um, Ted Sorensen uh speech he wrote for jfk ask not what you can do for your right. i bet you come up with one right now if you wanted to well you see, that man over there is the master but oh, so there you go wait wait let's say that again when you doubt your power you give power to your doubt yeah uh-huh yeah, he's got them all over there. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he's, I got the wrong guy at the mic. He's a catalog. Yeah. <laughs> we keep trying to get him to write a book, but he just doesn't do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that he, you can put, what do they call them? S-Fora? S for what? Anaphora. Anaphora. I think that's the name. You could just do a whole book of those that, you know, one on a page with a little illustration. Yeah. You know, you could be the new far side. Just call it the close side. The near side. Yeah. You know, Gary Larson's back on the web. Is he? I yeah. didn't know he was off the web. Well, I mean, you certainly you grew up on Farside as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you had to. Yeah. Every, all of us did. And now he, there's a website for Farside. Oh, and I'll I, say, yeah, I don't know. He might be publishing new content. I mean, you being, you, you know, you're a comedy guy now. Yeah, it was di- different than... Uh... Different than those those comics, although Scott Adams of Dilbert fame has been on the podcast a bunch of times. He's great. 
that dude, like he said, he speaks his mind out there on Twitter. He's got this huge following now. Yeah. They watch him drink coffee and talk right, about the stories. Drinks uh, coffee with Sky Adams every morning on Periscope. And every every morning he's like dum 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 dum. He starts with his little. That was kind of a good impression of him, actually. Did he? Dum 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 Scott. Yeah, Scott's uh, Scott's been on bad crypto. I want to talk to him again for Joel Com's show about some other things other than uh, crypto. And I want to talk about crypto in a moment, but I want to talk about comedy. All right. When did you decide I'm going to get up to the mic and and do this thing? Well, uh. Back in 1996, I was working at HBO and I was doing a lot of work for their comedy department, uh, like particularly the websites for all the different comedy festivals that and shows that HBO would would produce or sponsor. And every Monday there was a, a, a bar. I don't know if it even exists anymore. called the Luna Lounge on Ludlow Street in downtown. And all it was like an alt comedy night. And people like so the host usually was Mark Marin. And people like a young up and coming comedian like Amy Poehler or Louis C.K. or Janine Garofalo were always performing or Todd Barry. Or lots of lots of people were always performing there who are now household names. And we would go every my friends from HBO and I would go every Monday night and watch. Uh, and I was always thinking, man, I'd love to do this, but I'm terrified. I can't do it. And I really. I couldn't even go to a comedy show because I was afraid of being picked on by the comic. And you don't sit up front. That's you hide in the shadows. Right, right. And uh, it's like the only kind of entertainment venue where you're, you'd be willing to pay to sit further back. Like you'll pay more to sit further back. <laughs> don't talk to me. Don't see me. Right. And uh, uh, so, th- but then I started public speaking around 2004. And everyone always said to me, oh my God, this was so different than the normal talk I see are you a stand-up comedian? Like people would always ask me, are you a stand-up comedian? Are you a stand-up comedian? And I'm like, no, but I, one day I might try it. And then starting around 2014, I started adding more elements of actual stand-up comedy to my talks. And then around 2015, 2016, I started doing clubs. And then around 2016, I got really obsessed. That became my obsession. And I do up to, I don't know. I mean, this this week I'll do over 10, 10 shows. So now it's a thing. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, clearly not for the money because comedians yeah, it's definitely not for the money. Don't get paid. Do not. Oh, I'm actually, well, I'm going to Cincinnati. I'm doing six shows, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, headlining or co-headlining this, the, the main club in Cincinnati. I'm getting $600. So it does well, make some for money your, for your airline, yeah. for your coach. No, ticket. it does not pay for my airline. <laughs> my, my, first class ticket to Cincinnati and then uh for for my wife and kids as well so and then uh, and then the week after I'm going to um Amsterdam to do five shows at the International Stand Up Comedy Festival so it's a thing now it's actually a thing i've got is there a video of you doing your no, routine no no because i would put up videos every now and then and i i i get really and this is kind of the topic of my next book i get really super analytical when i'm learning something and uh, I I I really get intense about, and I've done, put a lot of thought into the so-called ten thousand hour rule. This idea that you have to work ten thousand hours at something to be good or great at it, and I just don't believe that. So I figure I for myself, I've worked on a bunch of hacks to this rule, this so-called rule, but it, it's actually not a rule. And I realize every time I put a video up, that a month or two later, my whole style and act was completely. 100% different. I was I was basically changing my act about 
every week. So you can never do a Netflix special. Well, or I can because I'll have a new one ready, you know, a few months later. Yeah, but then it's going to get dated. And, you know, See, I, well, I would encourage you. I would like, because there's a lot of people that would enjoy seeing your routine that don't get an opportunity to see it, you at the club. It's true, but I would say only, it's funny. So now it's like five or six years. It's only in the past six months that, you know, I realized some things that were, I, I had already kind of developed the basic skills. And by the way, when I say developed, that's not true because it's sort of nonstop. It's one of those areas where you you never stop learning. You've never really even developed halfway the skills that you need because there's always a, in, the more. It's one of those things where the more you learn, you realize how infinitely more there is to learn. And it's not just one skill called comedy. It's it's humor. It's likability. It's stage presence. It's crowd work. It's dealing with hecklers. It's it's timing. It's inflection. It's impressions. It's it's uh, improv. So there's all these kind of mutually exclusive skills that you have to get better at. And so you study different comedians to get better at each one. And you, you write every day to get better at the writing component. But uh, uh, in the past six months, I kind of realized, and this is out of you know five or six years, I realized I'm only going to, I'm not going to say a joke just because it's funny. Um, and it is similar to the discussion about money. Uh, I'm only going to talk about things I really care about and make them funny. So there's lots of jokes I could say that have a setup and a punchline and I can make it funny. If you combine any two concepts that don't seem like they're related and find some, you know, tricky way to connect the dots, it's that's kind of the formula for comedy. But I'll only do it now about things I care about because then what happens is if there's silence or if people don't seem to like it, then I don't care about them. So I'm still speaking from the core and I could just keep going. It doesn't matter to me if if they're not laughing, I could judge if I'm doing something wrong. But if I already know that these topics or jokes get most audiences to laugh, I don't have to care what the audience thinks because I I can always fall back on on my core beliefs that, that the comedy is stemming from. Who's um? It, you have to pick one. Your desert island comedian could be living, could be dead. One person that would be your go-to. Well, I, I'm going to pick one, but I just want to say that there is a there is a lot. Because right. because everybody's good at different things, and you, I wanted to get good at many of these different sub skills. But I think an an all around master of many of most of these skills is Dave Chappelle, obviously. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I didn't. It took me a while to warm up to his style because he's a little more conversational, mm -hmm. and also just in terms of style, Louis C.K. Um, but I mean, every every comedian's got a different. A, a different set of sub skills that you want to learn from. Like if you name a comedian that I happen to follow, and there's also some newer comedians that are uh, on the verge of shooting out the gate that are amazing, and there's different things to learn from them as well. So I have I have various go tos depending on what I want to learn that day. I'm still Stephen Wright to me is Stephen Wright's great. The, the master of the. It's the a deadpan it's a, one liner. It's a small world. I just wouldn't want to paint it. Right. <laughs> Great stuff. Yeah. Sometimes you can't hear me because I'm talking in parentheses. Yeah, yeah. He's, he, but you know, the thing is, okay, so the thing about him is that's amazing writing, which is why he's the only co-writer Louis C.K. ever used for the TV show Louis. Hmm. And he also helped Louis C.K. with that other show, um, Horace and whatever, um, which Louis C.K. only released from his website. But it's hard for someone like Stephen Wright to do a special. It's hard to do an hour of those. And it's hard to listen to an hour of those. But, by the way, he's the funniest person on the planet. 
because those that style of writing is incredible and it's very difficult. But it's it's again, it's hard to do an hour long special. Maybe that's why he's only done a couple. Yeah, it's really it's very it's inc- it's it, the shorter the act is or the shorter the joke is, the harder it is to write. So you mentioned Chappelle, and I can't help but think of the latest Netflix special. Yeah. Right. What did you think of that? I thought it was great. Yeah. So so it was sticks and stones, and he, he you know in his last in the prior four specials he had been criticized after each one over something or other that he had said. And he was always kind of like apologizing or thinking about it or why are they all criticizing me? And finally, he was like, I'm I'm sick of pandering to everybody. And he just wanted to do kind of the most charged special he could do. And it was amazing because what, what happened was on Rotten Tomatoes, there was one point where the the audience score, where the critic score was zero, right? And the audience score was a hundred. So the critics kept saying, "Would write." I would read. I read all the articles because I wrote about this phenomenon. I wrote about what he was doing, and I broke down the entire special. But the critics kept saying, "Oh, it's not just that the jokes are polarizing. They're he's mean. just yeah." Or or they would say, "He's just not funny anymore." Mm-hmm. And I thought that was such a stupid thing for all the critics to say, given that the audience score at that moment was a hundred. And in the special itself, you could see the crowd constantly laughing. Right. So who are they to judge well, what's he's funny? He's the ones that he was talking about. Yeah. Right. He's that was really an assault on the media establishment and the critics. Well, he at one point in the beginning he said, "I'm going to do impressions. You guys like impressions?" Which I, by the way, that was ingenious. He got the audience to give him permission to to what he did next. So they all cried. They all cheered. Yeah, yeah, we love impressions. So he did some mindless impression, and then he did another one. He was he he started speaking in this really buffoon voice, and he was like, "Oh, if you say anything, even 15 years ago, you're not allowed to have a job. We're gonna get rid of you." Blah. blah. And he was like, "Who am I imitating?" And everyone in the audience yelled out Trump, and he said, "No, MF, I'm 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 you." Yeah. And, and you know, and then uncomfortable laughter then, right? Because oh, yeah. We are, I mean, some people there are cancel culture minded. Yeah. And it, toxic as, as can be. I mean, why, why can't we just be ourselves? Sticks and stones may, you know, I'm not going to die from somebody's opinion. Well, and you think about it, like take something like, take something like horror movies, okay? Or, or thrillers. These were always, you know, in, I had this conversation with someone else recently where, you know, parents always wanted to expose their kids to potentially dangerous or horrible situations, but in a safe way throughout all of history so that they could learn not to do it. Or, you know, you, the kid parents would take kids to even, and this is probably too horrible, but this is what they did for thousands of years. They'd take their kids to public executions. Like, see, don't do what this guy did. Look what, look what happens. And then, you know, that switched to horror movies and thriller movies, which were, again, as far as the brain's concerned, it's probably the same thing. It's a, a way to safely expose a kid to something incredibly dangerous that they wouldn't want to participate. They wouldn't want to be a, an active participant in. So it's and, a and, lesson from watching The Exorcist at 10 years old, don't get possessed, kids. Or, mean, or, or, or maybe not be as scared of their... I don't know what the lesson is. Traumatized for life. But But now there's all these warnings and there's warnings of the warnings and... You can't go to a college class. Kids can't go to college classrooms. They get warnings if, if oh, we're going to discuss sensitive material today, kids. Like, Safe you know, spaces. 21, 21-year-old 21 kids are like, oh, no, I got triggered by this. Like, 
what what are you going what are you paying sixty thousand a year to go to college for just so you could stay home because you're triggered like you, you know now it's clearly like the 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 death of the roman empire now like there's you know everyone's like so concerned about climate change which i respect whatever but at the same time this society's already dead like humans probably shouldn't really live another hundred years <laughs> and I, I don't say this in a depressing way i'm sure your it, kids will love that um i've told them I, I don't even say this in a depressing way it just is what it is like if you're if you can't go to college anymore because you're triggered by something then you're basically you're as good as dead anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah is is college even i mean you went to university yeah, I went to university. I went to University of Illinois in Champaign. Got my four-year degree. Oh, so Mark Andreessen, you know, Netscape Mosaic yeah. was made yeah, out of the first there. the yeah. first graphic web first first visual web browser. A lot was born at U of I. Still is being uh, born there, but all I remember is a blur um, because those were the years of my life where I was just stoned. Right, and so and your parent. Good thing it was nineteen. 19- uh, uh 82 80, to 86 82 yeah, yeah. $4000 a year right so it's a state school so now the same school out of state I'll bet you if we look it up it's 67000 a year tuition I, I don't doubt it so let's talk about education um who is it necessary for and how are you going to treat it with your kids when they get of college age well my the I have five kids some you know three step kids two biological kids but my kids are age 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21 okay, right so now. we're going through it already. I've been there, done it, and going through it. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but but just in general, your, your first question, other than for legal reasons, nobody needs a college education. Like, who needs one? Like, okay, yes, to get a medical degree, which allows you to practice medicine, you need to go to undergraduate, then you need to go to medical school. Right. You, you, you get $600,000 in debt or whatever, and then you start paying enormous amounts for you know, your insurance for your, to have a practice. But it's the cost of doing that profession, just like legal profession you have to go through. Right. And which by the way, the that's ridiculous too, because I'm not saying lawyers don't do uh, a, a job that requires a lot of study, but what you study for to pass the bar probably has nothing to do with what you actually practice. Like, like I'm, I don't know if you have or not, but I've given lectures at law firms about, let's say, new areas of law that the lawyers didn't necessarily know about. So, for instance, as the finance sector got more and more regulated in the OOs or Bitcoin, I've I've given lectures to law firms on on many topics in the finance industry as they were getting comfortable with, you know, either areas of expertise that they their firm didn't currently practice or to keep track of, you know, changing regulations. So, you know, it's not that they're, you know, I, I don't know what the purpose of going to law school is other than to just squeeze another, you know, several hundred thousand dollars out of these kids. But I don't know, to be a computer programmer, you certainly don't need a college education. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are great computer programmers who are, who are 12 years old, probably better than any 30 year old. And uh, to be a writer, you don't need a college education. You just need to experience life and to, to read a lot and to write a lot. Maybe you could say, oh, you know, college teaches you a, a style of thinking, but you could learn that on your own. And plus there's, plus you could go to college for free. You just won't get the degree. Many co- schools offer their courses online for free through these online MOOCs. And then there's places like Skillshare, Coursera, Khan Academy, um, you know, LinkedIn learning, they're, they're, they're teachable, highbrow, masterclass. There's so many online schools, but people, and they're, and they're great. Imagine, I mean, they're great professors and teachers and courses and 
and they can be very active with the students in some cases, but it's not an accredited university. So kids are brainwashed into thinking, oh, this won't be, this won't apply to me getting a job. But it, they're wrong because the job industry has completely 100% changed in the past 20 years where bosses or managers or companies care only about what skills you bring to the table, not what your degree is. It's very rare, I think, oh, you went to Harvard, I'm going to hire you even though I have no idea about your skills. I think that only happens like if the boss went to Harvard and you went to Harvard, hey, go big H or whatever. I don't know what Harvard calls itself. And uh, you know, only in those situations does it help. But I think in general, it doesn't even help get a job. The only thing that helps get a job are skills, creativity, all these things that you can develop 100% on your own. There are no skills that actually require you to go to college in order to learn that skill other than for legal reasons, which, which, you know, you could learn medical stuff without going to college. You could learn the skill, but because it wouldn't be accredited, you won't be allowed to practice medicine. Mm -hmm. I went to Harvard. You did go to Harvard? Well, uh, I, I visited and I okay, got the shirts. I mean, you went I, to University of Illinois. I, I did. Uh, yeah. Did you go to grad school? I actually did speak um, at Harvard a few years ago legitimately. So that's kind of fun to put on the resume. But no, I did not do grad school. I got a liberal arts degree. In all things, irony of ironies, speech communications, because it seemed the easiest thing to do. But um, I had no desire to be a public speaker or even learn, you know, the, the curriculum. I just picked something. And yeah, because because that was that's, that was an easy uh, set of courses, right? Well, I didn't have to go. I mean, I just, you know, I was too hung over and stoned and I didn't, I didn't go to my courses. And that's, you know, that's what's so incredible about it is you can go to college and not learn anything that's, except about life. That's the best thing about college is that you don't really have to go. <laughs> Meaning like I didn't go to my classes either they were, uh, at my school. They kind of only had a midterm and a final. And so I just would blow off the rest of the time and do what I was passionate about, whatever it was those years. So, you know, the latter half of my college career is computer, you know, programming. So I would just write software and not go to the classes. Real life education. Yeah. I, I think, uh, so my kids both tried, um, they're in their 20s now, but they both tried college. Wasn't for them at the time. But I think if I was to go back, I would say, you know what, do two years community college and make it through that, get the basics because of the same thing you're going to get at the $60,000 a year university. And then decide if you want to approach a profession that would require an undergraduate degree. Yeah, I don't think that's a bad idea. Uh, although I would still say they don't even really have to do that. Like better to just go out and experience things and then you'll know what you want to do. Like in a classroom, you're going to get good at classroom skills. And in the real world, you're going to get good at real world skills. So my oldest, um, he goes to school at a, at a college in England. So he you know, obviously the tuition is much cheaper and it's also, it's a three-year degree in England mm. and he's majoring in computer science, which is probably the only degree where, where you're going to make it for the little, for the little tuition he's paying, it'll be worth it for the degree. And it was structured, you know, time for him to just focus on computer software. So that might not have been a bad decision for him. Second oldest was studying acting. And I'm like, why are you going to college? So I was always, I never said yes or no, because they knew my stance on this anyway. And I just wanted to constantly show them examples, like positive reinforcement about what it means to not go to college. They know, they don't know that it's a viable choice when they're 18, because their guidance counselors are brainwashing them into thinking, you have to go to college or you won't get a job. Why are you listening to a high school guidance counselor? 
A, do you want her job or his job? Or, and B, they have an agenda. They want to be able to say for their own funding purposes or whatever, oh, a certain percentage of our school went to these kinds of colleges. So they have a total biased agenda. They don't care about your kids. So in any case, finally, uh, after going two years, my daughter dropped out and is now here in New York City pursuing the acting lifestyle. We'll see how it goes. And then two youngest are in application phase right now, although I'm heavily encouraging gap years. Mm -hmm. Go see the world, go do something, and then come back to it if it's still your your jam. Yeah, which it's not going to be. <laughs> no one, no one's going to gap year and going back to college after that these days. Like, why would you have these an amazing real world experience where you might even make real money, and then suddenly you're going to get trapped by debt or you know huge payments? I didn't realize this when Travis and I first interviewed you for the show, but once upon a time, at least if the wiki is true, you um, you poo pooed. Bitcoin. Yeah. In, um, I want to say March, 2013, somebody asked, I used to do these Twitter Q and A's every Thursday. I did it for six years from 2010 to 2016, like clockwork every Thursday at three 30. Uh, I only skipped Thanksgivings every year and I just did it 51 weeks out of the year. And during one of these Q and A's in 2013, early 2013, somebody asked me what I thought of Bitcoin. And I said, I think it's a scam, which I did think. And then um, one of my friends saw that, Naval Ravikant, who, who later became or is currently very active in the Bitcoin space. And he was visiting New York and we spent like three or four hours together or, or more, maybe five hours together. And he just broke down everything for me from like a programmer's perspective and from an economic perspective, uh, like everything about Bitcoin. This was like in maybe like just a few weeks later. And I'm like, OK, I get it. And then. Just a month later, I built a store to sell. I was releasing on June 1st my book, Choose Yourself, and I was self-publishing it on Amazon. So what I did was, as a marketing thing, I created my own store, uh, which accepted Bitcoin. And by the way, I reached out to a lot of people to help me. Nobody even knew how to do it. Like I reached out to Coinbase. They stopped returning my calls. And I even complained to their VC, like, shouldn't if Coinbase is going to be active in the Bitcoin space, shouldn't they encourage people to use Bitcoin for transactions? They were like useless for me. So anyway, I created this Bitcoin store that accepted Bitcoin and I had one product in the store, which was my book. And so if you wanted my book a month earlier than my the official release date, you had to pay it in Bitcoin. Bitcoin was $61 a Bitcoin at the time. You had to pay one-tenth of a Bitcoin. So I got a bunch of Bitcoins from this and uh, you know, and everybody had to leave their email address. Uh, to buy so I could mail them the PDF of the book. And it was almost all Amazon employees. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. That's funny. So you got Bitcoin really. So, early so yeah. Though. So I, so I, so yes, I thought it was a scam, but so what everybody, uh, then I was convinced by, by, and, and, spoken to by someone who I really admire and who was incredibly smart and is incredibly smart. And I changed my mind. Yeah. So you mean you could do that in, yeah. in 2020? Like, people like, Oh, he thought this in 2013 and then he just changed his mind to make some money. No, I would, I, I would created a store and I very publicly announced that I was on CNBC talking about Bitcoin and you know, I was, probably more active in the Bitcoin space than just about anybody. Nobody had, nobody had a bookstore in Bitcoin. That's really early. I mean, yeah. when you think about it, and I remember, and usually I'm early to the game. I like to pioneer and play with the cool toys when they come out. When I heard about Bitcoin, 
I didn't get it because I didn't understand this whole mining idea. I mean, what are there little people on my processor? Ding, 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 ding. Bitcoins are shooting out. And because I didn't understand that, what that meant, I just kind of like, eh, it wasn't until 2017 that I finally went, oh, that's brilliant. Why didn't I get that before? Well, well, I think if you start with, if you start with the problems of money, you, you very quickly get to, you very quickly start to think of what the solutions could be. And then it turns out Bitcoin and its spinoffs uh, solve a lot of the problems of money. Just like paper money solved a lot of the problems of metal money. Like, let's say, I don't know, you, you wanted to buy a house. You want to bring a truckload of gold bars to the closing. There's some problems with money. And so paper money became these kind of certificates representing um, the value of the metal that you know, you could buy with this paper. If you go to the U.S. government, Fort Knox, and show, you know, a $100 bill in 1900 backed by gold, uh, you, you wouldn't get the gold, but it, uh, potentially the, the U.S. government was backing it with gold that they owned. So, so that had a problem, though, because what if your country was very innovative and successful but simply didn't have the natural resources of having gold deposits under the ground in their country? So it seemed kind of, silly to you know tap out top out your innovation just based on how much metal you had under the ground so we moved to a more fiat or basically trust-based system if you trusted the innovation and creativity of your government then you would trust the money and it was backed by the goodwill of your government there's enormous enormous problems with that many problems we don't have to get into them but you know, it's well, what if you don't trust the government? That's well, the well. First off, it's centralized. There's there's fees. You know, there's every time you make a, a wire, there's fees all throughout the banking system that are baked into the entire system. There's there's a lack of privacy. There, there's so many problems. It's it's. But there's like maybe seven or eight like really big problems that people wanted to legitimately solve. Particularly after, you know, you think about the financial crisis of 2008. I don't think people realize. Particularly now, it's kind of almost forgotten. I don't think people realize the U.S. had the world really had run out of money. Like we, there was no money to 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 pay people if everybody wanted their money. So the system broke, and a ba a very large band aid was put on top of it. And you don't know whether it was luck or skill or thank God or whatever, but it, that band aid worked. Who knows if it'll work a second time? Right, because it's no different today, right? We still don't have the money, although we're just printing billions of dollars. Right. I mean, they did solve a lot of problems coming out of that. Some of them were structural. Some of them were very just brute force, like give everybody, give all the banks like a trillion dollars. Mm -hmm. But some of them were structural, just how banks should value things. Uh, it, it's not, it's getting into the weeds, but it, it was clearly there was a big hole in a fiat money system and Bitcoin solves, solves that. And We'll see because whenever there's any new financial instruments ever in history, kind of it go, you know, Wall Street and speculators will go go crazy for a little while, and then you have uh, scammers and con artists go crazy as well. And I think we have seen the first wave of that. So in September 2017, this is one another part people don't remember me saying. I was everywhere writing and saying I went on CNBC and said it. I said 98% of these altcoins that you're seeing now. And these ICOs are total scams being run by criminals or incompetence. So, and it's hard to tell which is which, but uh, 
98% of these coins are going to go to zero. At this point in time, probably about 85% of those original ones are gone now. They're zeroed out. And the main ones, which I always recommended, the, the kind of the main players, either Bitcoin or Ethereum or the other coins that provide uh, a very important role in the ecosystem as opposed to just kind of some small functionality, the, those have survived. And all of the little play things, the ICOs and all that kind of stuff have, have all, you know, most of them have gone to zero. There's still a few more, I think, that'll go to a zero. There's some big ones, I think, that'll still go to zero. You want to say what they are? Well, you know, th this is the sort of category where I get death threats occasionally. So, but I, I, I don't think maybe it'll somehow become legit over time, like which, which occasionally happens. Uh, but I, I think Ripple is probably a scheme, but I have no real evidence of that. Just, just just studying it just studying how the code works i think i think ripple's probably a scheme is it the code or is it because it's highly centralized both i mean you could see one they 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 the 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 functionality is implied by the code and in the code you could see if who has control over printing up new coins mm -hmm. if it's not if it if it's centralized who has the control of printing money you know that's the whole idea of bitcoin is that nobody has direct control over it and so unless there's a 50 what's called a 51% attack but uh I, I, I'm not saying, I said it was a scheme and not a scam, meaning who knows? I don't know what the outcome is, but I just simply wouldn't own it. Even Here's, if it goes up, I'm not, I don't think of these things as investments. I think of these as the future, the future currencies of the planet. So if you're thinking of putting some percent of your portfolio in a, what could quite possibly be uh, the default currency of the planet, I wouldn't use Ripple for that. Uh, just a timestamp this it is uh february 19th and right now on uh coin gecko ripple xrp the coin that supports the function of ripple is 30 cents has a market cap of 13 billion dollars yeah so 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 that kind of suggests it's not a fad right there's a lot of money a lot of in order to get up to 13 billion it's not like mom and pop is buying up all the ripple it's uh uh it's some big money in there Although we don't know how much of that is owned by the initial founders and 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 so on, who could who could print up more money, and you know they say they can't. It's it's very it's very confusing. Ripple, Bitcoin is not confusing. Ethereum is not confusing. There's thousands and thousands of people who have looked at the code and studied it and tried to figure out any potential scams that can happen. And so it's pretty rock solid. You know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and some of uh, other coins in in the in those ecosystems. Um, whereas Ripple is not as thoroughly studied, there's some, you know, because it's because it is centralized, and there's some aspects of it that I don't know why. Why do they need to do that if they're if they're trying to solve the problems of, you know, a lot of these people. I'm not saying Ripple did this again. I'm just saying a lot of these ICOs just raise money um, for their coins that were never implemented and put the money in their pocket and disappeared. Mm -hmm. So, and that was obvious that it was going to happen. What about the primary Bitcoin forks, Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV? I don't care for them. I don't say that they're bad, but Bitcoin is still legit. And, you know, the 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 framework underneath Bitcoin gets better and better. The the speeds, you know, we're gonna have this having moment uh pretty Just soon. Months. Yeah. Right. Uh and and that's gonna change a lot of things in the Bitcoin ecosystem. So I don't know. I don't feel like any of those those, those they have uses or they had uses at at fork time. But I think now they're just speculative. Do you think we'll get to a point where we are 
using Bitcoin as a currency because it's so speculative. And, you know, if people are saying, hey, it's going to go to 100,000 or 500,000, why would you want to be like Laszlo and spend 10,000 Bitcoin on a couple pizzas when yeah. those pizzas end up worth multi-millions? Yeah, I don't know. I, to be honest, I don't know if uh, if Bitcoin will really be used for transactions anytime soon. But look, gold's not used for transactions, and yet billions of dollars worth of gold is traded every day. So, uh, uh, and gold actually has no real functionality, whereas Bitcoin actually has functionality. Like the the blockchain, and I don't want to. Blockchain is the most boring topic in the world, but it actually has functionality, and so so hence Bitcoin has functionality. So it could be used for those purposes as well. Not just a, one function of Bitcoin is as, as a currency; another is for its kind of extra legal functionality uh, uh with you know it's it's you know the lightning network on top of it and then as a store of value it's being used so when coronavirus okay when when iran oh we're gonna have war with iran bitcoin spiked because everybody believe it or not everyone in iran who had money was like i got i gotta get my dinars the hell out of here i'm gonna put it in bitcoin because i can't transport gold around so easily so bitcoin shot up and then uh, right on top of that was the uh, coronavirus and Bitcoin shot up again. Like, oh no, what if, what if the, you know, China is completely quarantined and that means nobody in the U.S. is going to get their made in China products, which by the way, is almost every single product in America. And then the American financial system has a similar 2008 style collapse. So you saw a lot of smart money, tens of billions of dollars rotate into Bitcoin, Bitcoin shot up like 30% uh, since or more since coronavirus erupted uh, two months ago. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on Corona. Is this uh, been manufactured by the Chinese government? Is this, is this something that came out of a lab and it's released now to quell the protests or is it just a natural phenomenon? Well, we, I did a, I did a podcast on this. I called up, uh, a, someone who is a uh, one of the top immunologists in the EU for coronavirus diseases, so SARS, MERS, and now this, you know, 2019 novel coronavirus. Yeah. yeah, now it's called COVID-19. Uh, so I was very anxious about this. And the answer is, is that, and I'm just, I'm not an expert, so I'm just repeating what, what this guy said, as opposed to what the nonstop barrage of quote unquote pseudo experts on Twitter and Facebook say, so I'm just, everything I say now is just quoting what an expert said, is that we just don't know. We don't know a lot of things. We don't know, for instance, a, a simple thing is everyone throws around, oh, there's a 2% fatality rate. We don't, we have no idea what the fatality rate is. We literally have zero clue. We don't know whether it's 2%, 4%, or 0.1%, or 0.001%. We just don't know because the first week of coronavirus, there's no symptoms and you can get, you can cure, be cured during that week. Just like coronavirus, 20% of the common cold is a coronavirus of some sort. This is just a particularly lethal one. So, but many common colds are cured before you even know you have a cold. Same thing with this coronavirus. So in the first week you could have symptoms, you could be infected and it could go away and you just never knew because there's no test either, or at least there wasn't a week or two ago. We could be walking Wuhan right now. We could, we could be Wuhan, we could be whatever. And uh, uh, the second week, you just have a mild cough. And so you still might get cured before you think, oh, I just have a cold, you know, it's not the coronavirus. 
the third week you die <laughs> um, if you haven't been cured yet and if it's particularly lethal. And then after the third week, if you survive, you're good. You don't die in the fourth week. But so so for all we know, mil- they say now, oh, 70,000 people have been infected. Mil- it might be the case that millions have been infected. We just have no idea. And we also don't know if containment or quarantining works. Now, China said in the past two days that the number of uh, infections has gone down, suggesting that containment works. But we really don't know. We don't know if they're what numbers they're inflating or deflating or whatever. And we just we really don't know many things, but we do know that the worries about this virus are similar to H. The numbers even are similar to H1N1 in 2010. It is the same kind of incidences of infection and incidences of fatalities at this point in the timeline, and then it turned out to be a big nothing. I feel like I've seen this movie before. Yeah, but to be honest. As opposed to all the other prior instances of these things, SARS, MERS, H, you know, avian flu, Mad swine cow. flu, all that, uh, I actually am worried about this one, not for the disease itself. So it could be the case that everybody in the world will get exposed to coronavirus at some point. That'll probably be the case. And my guess is the fatality rate is extremely low. Uh, but what I'm really worried about is the fear. So China, you know, they're com- they had completely blocked off. Every, like every factory closed down. And I would see just my friends, you know, everybody kind of postponed all their orders till February 9th when the Chinese New Year was supposed to be over. But now we're going to get into March and maybe three, four, five months after that, nobody's getting anything from Chinese factories. So who's going to go out of business? If, if the fear doesn't stop, then you could have a mass financial crisis in the U.S., because you can't you can't just switch from Chinese factories to uh, Indian factories or Malaysian factories like overnight. It takes a year or six months of, of planning, and by that time, most you know businesses that rely on China will be out of business, and then it's just disaster. That's got to be good for Bitcoin, though, right? It's good for Bitcoin, but it's bad for the world. Mm-hmm. So that's really that's the only way seven billion people get affected by coronavirus. Otherwise, maybe a million people will be affected, and that's horrible too. But that's what who gets affected by other diseases every year. But seven billion people get affected if the U.S. economy drops by ten percent, and and there's mass panic and unemployment and fear, mm-hmm. and nobody can get. You know, all antibiotics or most antibiotics are made in China. Most of the fashion industry, most of uh, you know, electronics, everything's made in China. And not, and, not and the shirt. This is this is made in America. Made in America. Well, well, and the problem is what you realize is that no, no industry had a plan B. So no matter what now, structurally big things will happen, which is every industry will develop a plan B eventually. And it's, it's you know, they had, an, I was surprised how few industries had an alternative source of manufacturing if in case this happened. Essentially zero of them uh, had, had a plan B. You know who got hit, is getting hit the worst though? Corona beer, right? Yeah. I mean- how horrible would it be to be the Corona family? Is that practice? actually true? Or well, no, I would imagine. I mean, I don't know if they're selling more beer or not, but I know that if you're kind of clueless about all this, would you? And you saw beer on the shelf. Maybe, I, yeah, I don't know. Or maybe, maybe it's all all news is good news. There's kind of, or there's this subtle thing yeah. like, oh, Corona. Yeah, I'll take Corona. I've heard that somewhere before. Just needs a lime in there, that, yeah. and that cures the whole the whole thing. Yeah. So yeah, so I'm I'm nervous about it not as a disease but as an as an economic disease. 
Well, you're self-sustained here. You know, you got your place, which, by the way, beautiful place. No, nobody is self-sustained in a economic collapse. That's true. You got to go. You got to get your food somehow, right? Yeah, you yeah. got to get everything. You got to get you. You know, I've had very smart hedge fund managers and other people tell me, you know, go to your CVS, go to your local pharmacy, and stock up on cough medicine because it's all made in China and there's going to be a shortage. Hmm. So if, you, if you're if you're used to taking Tylenol, by the way, also Tylenol is good if you have symptoms for the coronavirus and you're worried you have it. This immunologist suggested there's nothing, there's no cure, so you might as well take Tylenol. It's the best you could do to can't hurt. Yeah, maybe there'll be a cure in a few months. They're fast tracking all these uh, cures, but uh, particularly if there's going to be a shortage of Tylenol, you might as well stock up on it. And in a shortage of anything you can get in the pharmacy, it's pretty much all made in China. Hmm. You, you, most of your food is made in China. Interesting. We're, that that I'm not sure what to think about that. Go on. Yeah, like Tyson Foods. If yeah. you open up, a, if you get chicken in the frozen section of the grocery store, chances are that was made in China. Chances are the chickens were cooked or or were farmed here, sent to China, and then packaged up and sent back here. Really? So, yeah. I mean, what are our American farmers manufacturing? Well, they'll, they'll farm stuff, but they send it to China to package it up. They Really? Yeah. So it goes on the freighters, goes around the world, yep. and then it comes, it comes back. back. Mm -hmm. We don't have the, the manufacturing. We don't have manufacturing. Huh. Which is, which is fine. Like, everyone's like, oh, bring back our manufacturing jobs. Oh, who wants to kill a chicken and uh uh you know take it depluck it and uh uh you know clean it out and put it into stuff it into a box and send it back to the u.s sounds like a horrible job i just want to eat it it's delicious yeah. mm. like keep keep the manufacturing jobs china <laughs> let's end on a political by the way, note. By the way wuhan is like on lockdown you you get arrested if you leave your house now and they're actually locking them in i've yeah. seen videos on twitter and there's one woman who's been super courageous she is selling that the government is not telling you what's really happening and they're lying to the people and i'm basically risking her life it went super viral millions of views yeah well i i don't know who to believe so but the, the only thing is if containment is not working they should open up all the factories and just get just expose the world Hopefully there's some herd immunity mm -hmm. and open the factories again, because otherwise the, the alternative is some still some small percentage of people will die. And but the entire world will will have other issues that are that are just as bad mm -hmm. or, or like some mutated other form. Things. Right. If, if it's not if we don't get exposed, some future mutated form of it could be more deadly but that's what's going to happen anyway but it tends to just happen it, all these things tend to start in china so again i think people are going to be more active about having a plan b for their manufacturing but that's going to change the economic balance of the world over the next few years second there's gonna be a lot of more research on coronaviruses so that'll be a healthy thing three maybe people should stop putting bats at the top of the food pyramid in certain countries. <laughs> I don't know. Soup. Mmm, tasty stuff. Yeah, like, I don't know what when that became a delicacy, but that's they probably a bad everything. idea. They eat everything. I mean, I've not been, uh, but my mom goes to China quite a bit. And, shoots and she's videos. a racist. She, <laughs> she, she's not. She does shoot videos, though, for her YouTube channel, which amazingly has had like 30 million views now. Travels with Sheila.com. Really? Little shout out to my mom there. 30 million views is a lot. Uh, yeah, it is a lot. But 
she doesn't make anything, which is, you know, really the, the she, crime. She got a sponsor or something. I, Come on, you know you're what? an entrepreneur. She's, figure she's it out. She's almost 80 years old. She doesn't care. She just loves. It's a hobby. Gives her something to do when she's home for those six months of the year. But she's shot videos of all the things that they eat over there. And I'm like, okay, I wouldn't eat any of that. Yeah. You know, just give me my noodles and chicken and some veggies and I'm good. But the moment you start mixing in some, you know, crickets and cockroaches and other weird things well crickets and cockroaches have like 50 times more protein than i'm sure they a do steak. i don't the care the amount of steak i don't care i was raised to eat they, there, are, there are insectarians now yeah you could you could drop crunch, crunch. a cockroach from 100 feet high and it'll still live <laughs> okay that does not make me want to ingest one but just think if you could be dropped from a hundred times your height high and still live It'd be pretty amazing you would get those powers if you eat a, a radioactive cockroach <laughs> i think we're on to some new superheroes here x-men too speaking of superheroes let's close with politics i want to know your thoughts on trump uh you know in here's here's what i will will always get to is and i don't want to be pretentious I was don't be person. pretentious just no. say what do you think no, well, you want to have a good person as your leader, I think, in general. You want to have a good moral person who, not to say he's not strategic, not to say he or she is not going to, you don't want someone who's going to bend over backwards for other countries, um, but you want someone who, you know, at, at a base level has, you know, some moral fiber. We don't really know whether Trump is, we don't know anything about Trump, really. We We don't... Like I, after the Iran thing happened, I had a, a podcast with someone who was kind of pro-Trump, but he's very much anti-Iran. And so I wanted to find out, what, again, because whenever a big event happens, all the spectators start arguing. You know, every all, suddenly I, all my Facebook friends that I went to high school with are like the world's experts on Iran for, for the next three days while it's still the news cycle. They, they're like, you know, I didn't even know who Suleimani, I've never even heard his name before right. we killed him. Good we, he's dead, it's bad he's dead. What? You don't yeah, know. I, yeah. So all these people are arguing and they're saying, oh, this was, uh, this was a huge mistake. Why did you kill this guy? Uh, what was he doing in the Baghdad airport right after bombing our air bases and killing U.S. citizens, uh, U.S. civilians? So, and, and how many other like warlike things has he done? So anyway, I don't just, I don't say anybody should be killed or not killed, but clearly there was a strategic reason, regardless of who is president or not. But anyway, I had this podcast with this guy who was an ex, an actual expert on this stuff, and he said an interesting thing to me. He said one thing we one thing we know is the Iranian leaders are not crazy, and Trump might be, and so the Iranian leaders don't want to be nuked. They like where they're where they are. They don't want to be forced out of power and and or or worse and so they will do the right thing now to lessen tension because they have no idea if trump is crazy or not so i don't know if this is a good strategy or a bad strategy seems like a good strategy actually to not know to have the rest of the world not know if you're batshit crazy speaking Keep of Wuhan. yeah and so so he actually predicted on my hot podcast what they would do which is they'll do some sort of you know something that seems like a response but no one will get hurt which is what happened mm -hmm. or no one got killed people got hurt but no one got killed and and then and then they'll suddenly want to come to the table which is also what happened and trump's basically 
I don't even know what's going on. It's not in the news anymore. It's like went out of the news like right away because it seems his tactics seems to have worked, which is the frustrating thing. So regardless of how I feel about Trump or Bloomberg or Andrew Yang, I, for a while I really liked Andrew Yang. Um, regardless of how I feel about these people, you can't just have an entire menu of issues that you believe in and then just hand them out in the street. You've got to believe in every single one of these issues or else you're an alt-right fascist. Mm-hmm. Like, like I'm kind of left of center, but now for the, for, for the, it seems like for the base of the Democrats, I would be like a fascist by being slightly left of center, which is really annoying that they push really hard towards, yeah. you know, towards socialism. Well, and not even socialism. You can't even be the normal liberal issues unless you're an extreme. Now you, Oh, you're a Trump fascist or, and because I'm slightly left of center on the right, they'll say I'm a libtard. And so I, I, I basically can't say anything without both sides which is the which is the the bad thing about polarization is that you can't have a dialogue or else both sides hate you. And so I think some of Trump's issues are great. Yes, of course, uh, we shouldn't have unfair. We shouldn't have countries um, imposing tariffs on us that we're not imposing on them. There should be fair trade. That's the point of fair. And yes, you know, some countries where we've been providing, you know enormous support and aid, but they're, but they happen to be wealthy countries, they should pay for it. So some of these issues kind of make common sense. Other issues, like I'm not, um, I'm not right. Uh, like most, like most, you know, Democrats, I'm not right on a quote unquote, right. I'm not conservative on a lot of social issues, which Trump seems to be. So there's some worries about the Supreme court if he's reelected and we have two 80 year old justices, uh, uh, so it's complicated, you know, forgetting about the person, because I think, you know, morally is a cult of personality there. And yeah, and there's, you know, many presidents have moral issues. Trump seems to have more than most. But uh, but also, I just don't like the fact that you can't that because Trump bombed this guy, Soleimani, you're not allowed to say this might be an interesting strategic decision for all Americans or or because he's, you know, having a trade battle, which by the way, he's won in just about every country. Like we've mm-hmm. quietly, it's not even been, it's barely, been, I don't even know if it's been in the newspaper. We renegotiated the entire NAFTA deal and our trade deals with Canada and a lot of other countries. No hassles, no issues. It was not in the newspaper. Both houses of Congress voted for it and boom, it was done. A lot of things have actually gotten done. China looks like, particularly with coronavirus, China's going to start to really be friendly now on tariffs to to help their economy so and look this iran iran thing seems to have worked out so far isis have you when was the last beheading that you've seen in the not, newspaper they seem to be pretty much gone yeah so i'm not saying this is like a pro oh go trump maga blah 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 i'm just saying some of these things he's done probably were overdue and needed to be done mm-hmm. other things i don't know like particularly on kind of the the you know social side i i don't i don't really agree and then i don't really i don't know are you up on every single issue like i don't really know every single issue he's done i don't follow every law or executive i don't even read the newspaper all i know is the things that are in the the coronavirus iran (laughs) yeah yeah if it's trending on twitter i'll see well why is iran trending oh we might have world war three let's find out more about this before i a non-expert make a decision if i should be scared or not so is there anybody that can beat him from the, the roster of 
Democrats or do you think he's a shoe in? Uh, so I've talked to a lot of people who are experts. So I've talked to, uh, for instance, Scott Adams, who, who very accurately predicted Trump in 2016. I've spoken to another guy on my podcast, this guy, Phil Stutz, who helped run Trump's online campaign. I've also spoken to a lot of uh, high up people in Dem Democrat campaigns. And I think the common consensus is, you know, there's there's no common sense here. There's no you can't rely on prior elections. You know, everybody says people tend to vote their wallet. So if the economy is good and the economy is very good right now, at least on the surface, it seems the economy is very good. Uh, if people vote their wallet, it seems like that would suggest Trump. But you never know. It's Trump. You know, thing, the rules have changed. So you don't really know if, if Bloomberg gets nominated. And, you know, so one one person I spoke to, a very intelligent guy who who has run for political office and follows all of these things, he suggested a uh, that potentially a Bloomberg Klobuchar ticket could win. Which surprised me because I don't like Amy Klobuchar. Not I don't know anything about her. I just don't like the way she's campaigning. I think campaigning just on a beat Trump uh, uh, slogan is sort of why do you have to bring up his name every other? Why can't why can't you campaign on your beliefs? Why are you just campaigning on beat? I could beat Trump. Who can, okay, well what are you going to do when you rule the world? I want to know that is a little bit more important to me. But anyway, this guy said a, a Bloomberg Klobuchar ticket could beat Trump because. It all boils down to eight states and 300,000 votes essentially to turn any election. And Bloomberg will carry Florida and, of course, New York and California. And Klobuchar could carry these sort of uh, northern working class states that Trump surprisingly won in 2016. And so he felt that ticket could potentially beat Trump. But, you know, who knows if the economy is doing great and, uh, you know, I I don't know. I think I think Trump's probably gonna probably gonna people probably will vote their wallet. Bloomberg's not even officially in the campaign yet, right? Because he's not. There's not been a ballot that he's been on until. Um, well, he doesn't have a vote yet. He is officially in the campaign, but, but he has no. Yeah. He, well, well, that's funny too. Like, why is why are all the newspapers declaring him already the winner? Like, he's not, not and and they're running about. They're wondering about who his VP nominee is going to be. This just shows like Bernie scares them. Right. Well, exactly. So so this is what bothers me. Like maybe Bloomberg is a legit candidate, but he doesn't he, in the political process that's running. He doesn't yet have a single vote. And Bernie Sanders actually is winning the vote. So why do they automatically assume Sanders is out of the race? The guy's winning. So, you know, again, I am a little more scared. of. I'm just as scared of Sanders as Trump, actually. but. Uh, again, some issues might be good. Some issues might be bad. Uh, I don't like the rhetoric that on the ultra, ultra, uh, Democrat side, I don't like the rhetoric against if you, if you, if you built a big company, you should be penalized for it. So I think that is a very dangerous rhetoric in a, in a, a country that has for 250 years depended on its innovations and, and its belief in a frontier, whether, uh, geographic or, or conceptual. And so I think if you start overly penalizing innovation and the people who innovate, you, you're going to run into big problems. And I think that's kind of been the rhetoric of Sanders. And I get worried with, with Bloomberg that he's trying to pander to that a little bit as well, you know, to just get those votes. But it, you know, once you pander to it, you kind of have to live by it. So I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, I don't really want 
anybody. Crystal ball's broken. I did. Oh. I did like Andrew Yang for a while because I thought, oh, I, I, you know, I read both his books. I watched all his interviews. This guy seems like a smart guy. He seems like we could have gone seems to school like a with nice him. Guy. Yeah, and, and he seems like his IQ is through the roof. But I, I, you know, as a tech guy with a tech background, I didn't like the fear. I believe in the UBI actually, and I believe in that Yang has thought out how to pay for it. And I think it's very smart. But I don't like the fear mongering of tech is going to be the reason why we need a UBI. Like mm -hmm. that, that is just BS. I think I don't know if he's intentionally fear mongering or he just doesn't really know tech that well. I, I have no idea, but he seems like a smart guy. It's funny to me that the exact tech billionaire who's supporting him, Elon Musk, is also the guy creating all the automation. I sure I would love to be rich enough that I could be against the own technology that I'm inventing. So, you know, I find that fascinating. He'll just get on a rocket and and leave if he yeah, needs to. Yeah, right. So, and I, I didn't like that. I didn't like that he seemed incapable of in interrupting Bernie Sanders in the debates. Like, if you can't interrupt Bernie Sanders, you probably shouldn't be ruler of the world. Uh, last question. Let's bring it back to you because you talk about how you get Because I'm running for president as of now. <laughs> I'm announcing it on the Bad Crypto Podcast. I'll touch it. Well, this isn't going to be on this Bad Crypto. This is the Joel Com Podcast. This is the Joel Com Show, but uh, we'll let the Bad Crypto folks know as well. Actually, I think we'll take that little piece um, that we talked about, Bitcoin and Crypto, and put that in the show in Bad Crypto as well. You talk about getting obsessed with things. Is there something now that you're toying with that you think this could be my next obsession? Well, for 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 a few years now, it's been comedy. Like that's right. I mean, I did it last night. I'm doing it tonight, and then I'm doing going to Cincinnati tomorrow and doing six shows in Cincinnati, and then the week after next, so next week I'll do like three or four shows, and then the week after that I'm doing five or six shows in Amsterdam. So to to do that requires a level of obsession. You're committed to that. That's like you're going to do that until you're not. But also I've been I've been reinvigorated lately by uh my own podcast. I recently went from two episodes to four and I've been uh playing with different formats and uh and I I I write every day. I'm I'm working on a a, a book that I'm very very happy with, which is not a, which is being traditionally published, which I don't normally do, and it's coming out essentially a year from today. But um, um, any right. hints about it? Yeah, yeah. It's called "Skip the Line," and it's kind of about a little bit about some of the things we were talking about. How basically how whether you're young or old or whatever, how to how to find your passion and basically kick ass at it, no matter what everyone else is telling you. Like if you're you're 55, if you say to your if you say, "Oh, I'm gonna be." I'm going to move to Hollywood and be an actor. A lot of people are going to tell you, Joel, come on, you can't do that. You needed to start when you were 20. You're going to have a million people tell you you can't do it. You'll even have actors also tell you you can't do it because they don't want you skipping the line. So the book's called Skip the Line, and it's basically how to find the, the, the basket of things you really love doing and that you could be obsessed by and how to get great at it really quickly. Like, no, no. Throw out the ten thousand hour rule. I have something I call I'm calling the ten thousand experiment rule, which you could implement much faster, and if you do it right. And uh, yeah, that's essentially the book. Love it. Yeah, it's gonna Can't be fun. Wait to see it. And, and for every for every interest I've ever had, I had to very quickly skip the line with everybody telling me you can't do this. I I started investing professionally in two thousand one, or actually even in nineteen ninety nine, and I had to very quickly. So I was bad at it at first, and I had to very quickly get good at it without an MBA, without working ever at a bank, without ever working at an investment firm. I got good at it quickly. 
software. I switched majors formally my senior year of college. I had to get good at it quickly. Everyone said, you can't do this. The, the, the guidance people, whatever, you can't, you're not allowed to do that. You can't do this. I had to get good at it quickly. And then I wanted to go to grad school. I, I went to grad school for, I, you know, published research by the time I was a senior. So uh, every industry I've ever been in, I wasn't an entrepreneur and I, I built a business very quickly. I had to learn how to be one. I built a multi-million revenue profitable business on my first go around at it. And it was tough. Like I hated it, but I had to learn. So I had to skip the line. But Gladwell would say you're an outlier and that your path is not duplicable for others. Well, but I, I think he would be wrong. So he also though said the normal path is the 10,000 hour rule. But I don't, I've, I've spent so much, and I've, I've spoken many times to Anders Ericsson, who is the professor behind the 10,000 hour rule. He wrote a book called Peak. He's been on my podcast. In 1992, I was actually part of some of the initial experiments to, to sort of prove or theorize the 10,000 hour role because of, I'm a chess master. So he did a lot of studies on chess grandmasters, masters, and amateurs. And I was one of them. And uh, I just don't believe, other than for repetitive tasks, I don't believe the 10,000 hour role. And I think you can repeat this kind of success with the methods I, I'll describe in my book, but first and foremost is to think of things in terms of experiments rather than time you put in. And so then it's all about how to design the right experiments that will propel you the most forward in the fastest amount of time with the least amount of money. Watch for James' book, Skip the Line, in 2021. I feel like there's just endless rabbit holes with you. And I want to say your name with the French accent, jean Zeltucher. That's, that's correct. My 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 sister lived in France for a long time, so she said it's much better there. Uh, Al Touche or Al Touche. <laughs> Très bien. Thanks, James. Really appreciate it. Hey, but the real way to pronounce it is I'll touch her fast. <laughs> I'll touch her. Not safe for work. Yeah, not safe for work and get you in trouble. Somebody's going to need a safe space now. Yeah, you could cancel Joel Com if you listen to this podcast. <laughs> and go listen to James Altucher's show instead. Right. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank you, Joel. It's great.